Welcome to the March of History. I'm your co-host, Trevor Furness. And this is Brendan Furness, the other co-host on March of History. So, some quick announcements before we get to Julius Caesar and the history. I opened up a Twitter and Instagram page for the podcast. Apparently, March of History is taken for a domain name for websites, for Instagram, and for Twitter. But the March of History is not taken for any of those things. So I guess by virtue of what's available, we are now the March of History rather than March of History. The one and only March of History. Exactly. The March of History, not a March of History. So if you're looking for us on social media, just search the March of History on either Twitter or Instagram. And eventually I'm going to have a website up, hopefully by the time you guys listen to this episode. But whenever that happens, it happens. So we are now the March of History. Follow us on Insta, follow us on Twitter, and I'll post some interesting history facts and maybe some things about ancient Rome as we go through the episodes. And also keep you appraised of when we're launching new episodes. Oh, the other thing I want to say is if you're enjoying the podcast, even remotely, please leave a review. It really helps, as I understand it, with the algorithms for you know podcast stores and helps promote the podcast. We would love it if you would leave us five stars. That would be much appreciated. Say some things in the comments and leave as many reviews as, as possible. Thank you. So getting back to the history, Brendan was not here last week, but I caught him all up on what's going on in Caesar's life. And where we left off was that Caesar had just left Spain. And one thing I hadn't mentioned before he left Spain, so he sees the the statue of Alexander. He has that kind of midlife crisis. But then again, you know, he's only 30 years old. But in those days, they didn't live that long anyway. You know, maybe you'd only live to 60. So I guess that would be your midlife crisis. In fact, Caesar doesn't even make it to 60. Spoiler alert. But one thing I hadn't mentioned was that Caesar has this dream while in Spain that he rapes his own mother. Obviously, he's he's pretty upset about this. And he goes to see a soothsayer. A soothsayer was kind of a fortune teller. You know, somebody that was in touch with the gods and would tell you your, you know, fortune and, and your future. And these were big deals in the ancient world. And even real tough military personalities like Marius believed these predictions that soothsayers put out. Or at the very least, found that they were great propaganda. So because Marius famously went to a soothsayer that told him that he would be consul seven times, and then he spread the word like crazy that he would be consul seven times. Well, Caesar goes to a soothsayer and, and tells her his dream, and she says about it that it meant that he was destined to conquer the earth, which is, quote, our universal mother. I Meaning, Earth is our universal mother, and your dream of raping Earth or raping your mother is your dream of conquering the world. Now, is this fictitious and invented up, you know, invented afterwards because he ends up conquering a lot of stuff? Maybe. I do wonder where, how a story like this even gets out. You know, who has a dream like that and goes around tell, telling people? <laughs> and maybe you would tell close associates, but would you tell enough people for it to make it into the history books? Seems somewhat unlikely, but I mean, this is what they write, so. You know, we don't have anything else to go off of, so we'll take his word for it, I guess. What are your thoughts on that, Brandon? Yeah, I remember, you know, hearing how Caesar was very close to his mother, but yeah, I'd never heard that he had had dreams such as this where he was, he was that close. But um, 
<laughs> yeah, no, no, I call that. <laughs> but yeah, no, it is an interesting. I remember you saying in the past how his mother had a lot of influence on him, but yeah, it's kind of like a, a weird, you know, kind of story. I, I know they had a lot of superstition and weaving a lot of dreams and portents, meaning things like that. But yeah, I had never heard this one before. Yeah, very superstitious people, and his mother did have a huge influence on him. And his father died when he was, I don't know, anywhere from 14 to 16 while putting on his shoes. His father died. And so Caesar, his father's never mentioned too much in the histories, but his mother is mentioned as being extremely strict on him as a child, almost being a helicopter mom and supervising him even when he played with the other boys. So she coached him to be ambitious from the get-go and he probably had those ambitious genes in him so probably just you know fueled what was already there so suetonius which is one of the historians that we go off of one of the primary source historians and again that that can mean that they're even a hundred years or 200 years after caesar's time but we still call them primary sources and he suetonius is kind of like a caesar basher he likes to always be suspicious of caesar and Suetonius, the historian, says that when Caesar – this whole thing happens with his mother, or the dream about his mother, this whole thing happens with Alexander, you know, where he breaks down and sees a statue, and he feels that he's not doing enough. So he leaves Spain early, as we said, and he goes to try to do something drastic, Suetonius says, that would put his name in the history books and make him feel that he's doing enough to compete with the legacy of Alexander the Great. And there was an area of mod or what they called Gaul, called Transalpine Gaul, part of a Roman province in modern day, I believe this would have been in southern France. And it's a part of the Roman province. It was conquered maybe a hundred years earlier. The residents of this Transalpine Gaul are a mixture in descent from Romans, Romans and Italians and people from Gaul. But culturally, they're all Romans. But they don't have citizenship. They have what's called Latin rights. Latin rights gives them some rights, more so than other you know, conquered peoples, but it does not give them the full right to vote for politicians. And from the Roman point of view, this was always an issue because we conquered you. Why should you then get to vote for our politicians? We established our dominance over you. You do not then get to outnumber us and choose our politicians for us. Otherwise, you know, in conquering you, you conquered us. So the Romans never wanted to give up the, you know, the vote and citizenship to any of these conquered peoples, and they would hold out as long as possible. But there would always be agitators who would be trying to get these people to vote, and Caesar's one of those people. Now, the optimates who are the conservatives, would have said that he's doing that because if he gets them the vote, then he instantly gets all these people as clients and makes himself much more powerful, and that there's nothing altruistic about it at all. It's all self-interest, and they don't want to see any one person gain so many clients. So even if they believe that this should happen, that it's going to be stable for the empire to bring these people into the fold rather than having them talking about rebellion on the fringes of the empire – even if they believe that people should have the vote, they don't want to allow any one person to get credit for that vote, so they'd rather see nothing happen at all. And this is, this is a theme again and again throughout Roman politics, where even when there's a reform that everybody knows needs to happen, they, other politicians will block it again and again because they do not want to see one person get credit for passing this clearly needed reform and getting all that popularity with the people. 
So, I mean, eventually these measures do get passed or no? Is how, how do they end up? So what happened here was that in Transalpine Gaul, if, if you're maybe familiar with Italy or from Italy, as I understand it, is in the Po Valley. And there was a – they called it the Social War where a lot of the Italian allies rose up in rebellion against Rome exactly because they weren't getting citizenship. And Sola fought in that war and was putting down – one of, like the last of that rebellion when Marius you know did his whole thing and so the marched on Rome. So after that war, the conservatives kind of caved in and said, "All right, now that we've won the war and established that we aren't giving in to your demands at force, now we can be clement and grant citizenship to all the Italian peoples that did not choose sides against us in the rebellion. So anybody that was on our side, we can now give citizenship to." But that line stopped at the Po River, which is in northern Italy. Anybody north of that did not get any citizenship, regardless of which side they chose. And that was these people. And they're not happy about that. You know, this is 20 years later, maybe more. And so Caesar goes there and he's talking to these people and he's making connections with their leaders. And Suetonius says he's basically fomenting revolution among them. And trying to raise rebellion and then take and you know and, and and essentially storm Rome by force and take power for himself. And you'll see that there's a theme here because a lot of this stuff, in my opinion, was invented after the fact. After Julius Caesar crosses the Rubicon later in life and marches on the city and makes himself you know ruler of the city. They go back in his life and they try and point out all these instances. Oh, he was trying to do this all along. It was all part of his grand strategy. I don't think at this point he had any ideas of taking over the government. He had other opportunities. There was the one where he first came back to Rome from, from the Middle East and he had the chance to join that guy Lepidus's rebellion and he said no to it. Sertorius fought like a 10-year campaign in Spain against Roman forces and against Pompey, and Caesar could have gone and joined with him at any time. If there was a rebellion to join, it would have been that one. So why would he then go to Transalpine Gaul with a harebrained scheme to raise one small section of the empire in rebellion against Rome itself? It, it doesn't seem like a well-thought-out plan at all. It doesn't seem in character with him. And the Suetonius does say that the consuls caught wind of this whole plot, and it was only because they got lucky and they had some newly raised legions in the area that they brought over that the rebellion was able to be not put down but discouraged by the presence of, of the legions. Again, I don't think a lot of that's accurate. I don't have any evidence to base that off of outside of just it doesn't seem likely. What are your thoughts, Brandon? Yeah, yeah, I mean, so basically you're, you're saying that they think that he was, uh, yeah, I think a lot of times it's easy to say in hindsight that things were happening a certain way, that they were planned out, but, but yeah, I mean, it's always a case that no one has, you know, real control over any situation and everyone kind of is an opportunist and, you know, does what they can at each, at each point and then you look back and then you, you interpret it. When you explain to people what you did, even, you're always giving an interpretation of what you did. You don't really know exactly why you did it. Yeah, that could be. I mean, I, I think that he and other people definitely had precise plans that worked out. But you'll see, like, he gets accused of a lot of these conspiracies where there's no evidence of anything that actually ever happened. And it's more people going back 
So it, it's, it's the whole great man thing where if somebody accomplishes great things and they go back and, you know, when he was born, like Kim Jong-un, I think, when he was born, like valleys split apart and, and mountains grew out of nowhere and rainbows appeared and all this. Yeah. Were they writing that when he was first born? Probably not, you know. <laughs> but yeah. after you, you know, roll over people, they go back in your life and they try to pick out different things that then explain actions later in your life. But they're they're trying to recreate the story, you know, after they know the ending in hindsight. You know, they're Captain Hindsight, essentially. Right. But even Adrian Goldsworthy in, in his book, Caesar, Life of a Colossus, he thinks that all of that's unlikely as well. It just it, it seems like a poor bet and if he's trying to create a revolution, it fails, then he walks straight back into Rome like nothing happened. Wouldn't he have been exiled or something? Yeah, yeah, someone would have had some idea. Yeah, so whatever he did, he was probably just recruiting clients there, and he's getting kind of a reputation as being you know, a populare, somebody for the people at this point. Maybe some of the conservatives got nervous about what he was doing there. Why Why had he left his province early? Why was he lingering in that area that they knew you know, was kind of fractious? So maybe they drew their own opinions about that. I don't know. But he goes back to Rome afterwards. And the first thing that he does is he marries somebody new. So he's been a widower for what? A year, a year and a half now. And he marries, funnily enough, and this is ironic, the granddaughter of Sola and her on her mother's side. And her name is Pompeia. So here you have the nephew to Marius, an enemy of Sola, marrying the granddaughter of Sola. And that's when I said that all of these Roman family marriages, that they're, all the aristocrats are all related to each other in these incredibly complex webs. This is what I mean. Everybody's related to everybody in some way. So, I mean, it, it seems like there's a lot of this distinguishment based on family. And, you know, this family has a good reputation, the Julian's. I mean, if they're so interbred, then how can you even distinguish? Exactly. It, is, it allows people to pick whichever side they think is going to win. Right. You have family members on both sides, and everybody's playing realpolitik, but not so much for the sake of any party, but for themselves individually. And I actually have a passage I want to read from the book, Adrian Goldsworthy's book, where he talks about – remember earlier I said that don't think of them as Republicans and Democrats. It's not like that. He kind of explains that maybe maybe better than I was at the time. So I'll read that for you as well. Before that, I want to talk about how marriage worked in Rome. There's some interesting traditions and some dark traditions that we do today that we don't realize come from very dark traditions. So marriage in Rome. So I'm just going to give you kind of a, a flavor of what the wedding itself was like. And if anybody's interested in, in what that kind of stuff was like back in ancient republic he says quote a good deal is known about the rituals associated with conventional marriages at rome although we do not know whether all of these were followed at caesar's wedding in 67 bc as with most aspects of private and public life at rome there were sacrificial offerings and taking of omens brides were traditionally supposed to wear orange slippers and home woven dresses fastened with a girdle tied in a complex quote herculean knot for the groom to undo on the wedding night. If Pompeia followed the usual conventions, she would have had her hair bound into six plates and covered with a bright orange veil, or flamum, I guess it's called, or again, my Latin pronunciation is not great, but flamum, a reminder of Cornelia, who was Caesar's 
by now a deceased wife, who would have had to wear such coverings whenever she left the house if Caesar had actually been made Flamondialis. In a torchlit procession, she would then be escorted from her family home to the groom's house, where the latter would be waiting. On arrival, the doorposts of the house would be decorated with wooden fillets and anointed with oil or animal fat. The bride was then carried over the threshold, a gesture, and this is the dark part, a gesture that was believed to go back to the rape of the Sabine women when the first Romans had only been able to find wives by kidnapping the daughters of a neighboring community. The first Roman brides had therefore entered their new homes unwillingly. This ritual, though without a general consciousness of its supposed origin, has survived into the modern world. But Roman practice differed in that it was the bride's attendants rather than the groom who actually carried her. So if you don't, if you if you're a little bit confused about the the whole rape of the Sabine women thing, the story goes that when Rome was first started, it was an assortment of scoundrels and people from all over the place, kind of like a melting pot of immigrants, but they were pretty much all male. And they didn't have many women in the city. And they knew their neighbors. The Sabines had lots of women. So they, they invite the Sabines over for a feast. And when the Sabines get nice and drunk and, and fat and happy with food, the Romans suddenly jump out with weapons and, and kidnap all their women and take them away as brides. And pretty dark stuff. They basically essentially take them in and force them into marriage and rape them. And... This is odd because you wouldn't think that – I mean this is told by the Romans about themselves. How many societies tell darks the bad side of their own story like this? And there's, there's a few things that were, were Romans like this where their past is kind of treacherous. And the Sabines get real mad and they go home and you know the men gather up all their arms and they go to go to war with the Romans. And I guess some time has passed by now, maybe a year, maybe more, and – a lot of the women, I guess, maybe have kids by these men now, and maybe they even feel like Rome's their new home. And, you know, when the two sides meet, the women all go out to the Sabine men and they say, you know, these are their, their fathers, their brothers, their uncles, their neighbors, and they tell them to put down their weapons and that, you know, everything's okay now. And they want the Sabines and the Romans to get along and to not fight and kill each other, you know, essentially because nobody's going to win then. And everybody puts down their weapons and and, and kind of calls a truce to it. But it's this uh, it's from that that the tradition of carrying the bride over the threshold comes from. Yeah, no, I didn't realize that was a Roman tradition of um of kidnapping <laughs> that came from. But um, yeah, the Romans they have a few like dark things like that that their enemies would say, hey, even by their own admission, they're treacherous people. You know, I don't need to say anything about them. All I need to tell you is their founding myths, and and they themselves are bad people. They themselves, their own stories, don't even depict themselves as being good. Now, getting back to Caesar, Caesar's a few years before he can run for the next political office. So he makes himself busy. In the meantime, he's, he's still in the Senate. He can still politic with people. He can still host powerful people for dinner and, and try to jockey for influence and help other people gain office, and, and this is all part of growing in the political ladder. And Caesar starts speaking out in support of Pompey 
Remember we talked about Pompey, the, the young general that had a triumph and, you know, never held any positions in the Senate and was a supporter of Sola and kind of stole Crassus's thunder in the Spartacus War. Well, he starts supporting Pompey in a, in a few different ways. And before I even talk about that, though, because this has to do with it, I want to read that section that Adrian Goldsworthy talks about the political, quote-unquote, parties in Rome and how they weren't actual parties. So he says about Caesar, Caesar sees the opportunity to be noticed and to be associated with the success of the laws of Pompey. There was a chance that some small share of the latter's popularity would rub off on him. More importantly, he had voiced opinions held by a broad range of citizens, including many equestrians and other moderately prosperous Romans whose vote counted for so much in the assemblies. To espouse popular causes in this way was to be a popularis. Although often portrayed in older studies as almost well-defined political party or groupings, this was no more than a style of politics that relied on winning the support of the people. The Gracchi had been populares, as had Marius at times, as well as Saturninus and Sulpicius. Although they raised many of the same issues, these men did not hold a fixed set of common views. Caesar had from early in his career been inclined towards a populares path, but in the same way, this did not automatically mean that he had made common cause with anyone else who acted in the same way, as many did. Politics remained essentially an individual struggle, since everyone else was a competitor. It was not just a question of winning popular acclaim, but winning more than anyone else. So it is all about yourself as an individual in the end, and maybe your family as well. These are not well-defined parties, and Populari kind of more describes your style of influence rather than a political party. But a style of influence which the optimates, the more conservative members, found to be destructive to the republic. Now, the populars would say the same about the optimates and say that they just obstruct any necessary reforms from happening to the empire. And so then things like the social war erupt because the conservatives or the, the optimates I'm going to start calling them optimists rather than conservatives so that we're not thinking of today. And, you know, we're not calling the popularized liberals. So, <laughs> But the optimates, people like Caesar would say that the optimates had blocked reforms on voting for so long that it caused the civil war of the social war. You know, they would block, you know, anything, these necessary reforms from happening that would then explode in these absurd wars or civil unrest because they wanted nothing to change. Now, what was Caesar supporting of Pompey? That's a good question. Now, remember the pirates we talked about that Caesar had killed? The ones that had kidnapped him and then he crucified them all? Right. He raised his own private army and everything. So pirates have come to infest the Mediterranean Sea. And they are threatening the grain supply in Rome, which comes largely from Sicily and from places outside of Italy. And... I think the old saying goes that Rome was never more than two days of no grain shipments away from revolution. And essentially saying that, you know, if the people don't get their grain shipments daily or, you know, near daily, they're going to have the politicians' heads on pikes. So the politicians were always very careful to make sure that the grain shipments were never disturbed to the people. Bread and circuses, keep them busy, right? 
And these pirates are not only threatening the grain supply, they're threatening all commercial interests in the Mediterranean. And they're threatening the powerful elites from traveling around the Mediterranean, which they need to do in order to run this empire. For example, you have young aristocrats like Caesar being kidnapped and ransomed off for money. Most people aren't so bold as Caesar, they don't raise their own private army and go after the pirates and kill them all. You know, they're just victims and they got to pay all this money to the pirates. So, and this has been going on for decades and it's gotten worse and worse. And they had given the command previously to other people and they hadn't been able to solve the problem. The pirates would flee inland until, you know, that person's term was up. The pirates would, you know, just run and hide or would avoid them or, or whatever the case may be or the person, you know, running the operation was incompetent. And so that nobody had been able to solve this issue. So somebody puts forward a bill saying that we should give somebody command. I'm not saying who, but we should give somebody command of the entire Mediterranean. And we should give them imperium, which is the Roman imperium meant that you had the power of life and death over everybody in a certain area. So governors would have imperium over their provinces. They had complete command. And so they said we should give imperium to somebody over the entire Mediterranean plus 50 miles inland of any coast and an imperium that was superior to the governors of whatever land that coast was near. So say you have the coast off the coast of Spain and you have a governor of Spain with the 50 miles inland from the coast. This person that would control the Mediterranean's imperium would be superior to that governor's. And this person would be given an enormous number of ships and men and assets to combat these pirates. Well, Brennan, what do you think the uh, concern of many senators was with this proposal? Yeah, I mean, I know it's part of the Roman culture. Well, well, it's part of the Roman culture to always strive to be the best. They never like it when someone is when someone does rise above the rest. So I'm sure they gave Pompey grief or whoever was making this this decision to give him so much power. I'm sure they didn't appreciate it. Not at all. So first of all, they, they didn't. <laughs> This is like Pompey's version of being subtle. He has this tribune of the plebs put up this motion without saying his name, just saying that somebody should be giving this position. And everybody knows that it's Pompey who's going after this. Nobody's stupid, you know, but Pompey thinks he's being sly and, and subtle. And a lot of people have a big problem with this because they say we should not be giving one man all that power. This is what they would call a special command. This is not a normal command. He's going to have control over huge tracts of the empire, and his imperium is going to outweigh everybody else's. He's going to have all of these assets at his disposal. What if he doesn't want to lay it down at the end of all this? What if he wants to march on Rome like Sola did? And we're just setting a precedent that these special commands can just be given out to the most talented people in Rome. On top of that, like you said, everybody in Rome is extremely jealous. They're all, they're all haters on each other. They all want to be the best. They all want nobody else to be the best. They can't stand to see somebody else get something special. You know, they don't even like seeing other people get offices that are normally held by Romans, never mind a special command. So they're against this. Caesar speaks out in support of it and makes sure that, you know, everybody knows that he's in support of this. He's trying to get in Pompey's good graces. He's trying to, you know, Pompey's extremely popular at this time. As Goldsworthy said, he's hoping that some of Pompey's popularity will rub off on him by supporting his causes. And Pompey eventually, he does get given this command of all the Mediterranean. And Pompey is the consummate administrator and organizer. He is extremely efficient. And when he gets this command, the price of Rome of pricing of grain in Rome plummets immediately. It goes back to normal prices because 
the business community had so much confidence in Pompey and that he would get this job done that they stopped hoarding grain and started, you know, the supply increased immediately. Where I imagine that's why. So was it that he actually did anything like to? No, he hadn't done anything yet. The second they announced it, the the prices started falling. Wow. So this is is just the market reacting to the news. The ancient marketplace. (laughs) It's their ancient stock market. But Pompey, what he does is he divides the Mediterranean into sectors. He says we're going to sweep them one at a time of pirates because one of the other issues that other people had were that you know they would chase the pirates out of one area, then they flee into the next area, then they would chase them out of the next area, and they'd flee back into the old area. You know, it's a game of cat and mouse. So he says we're going to divide it into sectors. We're going to clear one area at a time, corner them all, and then he had this very unique policy. And it would be unique today, but even more unique in the ancient world, which in the ancient world in antiquity was brutal. But Pompey says, I am willing to allow any pirate that surrenders to be resettled on good farmland in a separate community along with their families and no punishment to happen. So he goes, if you surrender to me, I'll find you good farmland. I'll put you in a community spread throughout the empire. Your family can come too, and I'm not going to put you in crap land where you're going to feel the need to go to piracy to support your families again. I'm going to give you good land where you can be productive citizens, pay taxes to the empire, and not steal stuff from people you know who are trying to make an honest living by shipping goods around the empire. And this works brilliantly. Pirates start surrendering in hordes. This is, a, this is a revolutionary concept in, in antiquity where even Julius Caesar, famous for his mercy, is, is crucifying these guys and slitting their throats. You know, this is, this is not a normal thing. Hmm. So in that sense, I mean, you know, comparing Caesar to Pompey, I mean, was Caesar more – I mean, was Pompey more forward-thinking than – than Caesar was. I mean, because Caesar did a lot of brutal things to the Gauls and to the pirates. And, you know, is it, was, it, was Pompey uh, a better manager of people? I wouldn't think so. His nickname as a young guy when he was a general with Sola was Carnifex or Adolescent Carnifex, I think is what it was which translates to essentially the adolescent or teenage butcher. But yeah, one thing I forgot to mention is that it took him this whole this whole operation. It, it, it took him only a few weeks to clear out the western part of the Mediterranean and it took him only slightly longer to clear out the eastern half. So he does a problem that couldn't been solved that nobody could solve for decades and he solves it in a matter of maybe a few months. You know, we're talking weeks for each side of the Mediterranean, and that's a huge amount of area. And there's, I mean, thousands or hundreds of thousands of coves that the pirates can can hide in. So had he said, I'm going to kill all the pirates, he probably would have been spending years hunting these guys out of these coves. But they know, hey, I can surrender and get all this nice farmland and, you know, not get killed by this massive armada that's, you know, going around the Mediterranean. That sounds like the better option. So they started coming to him and surrendering. So now these pirates, are they... Like what territory were they mostly from? Were they Italian peninsula? Uh, all over the empire. Oh, okay. They were concentrated in the eastern part of the empire, the you know Middle East, Greece, uh, Turkey area, the Greek islands. But the population of the world at that time was concentrated in that area as well. 
that area was much, was much older, had a lot more wealth and a lot more population than the western half of the empire. And this is a major success in Rome. Pompey's seen as, again, a conquering hero. Not the first time. It won't be the last time. He's a guy that's skipping all the rungs on the political ladder. He gets nothing but special commands. He's never been a quaestor. He's never been an aedile. He's never been a praetor. He jumps straight to consul, which is unheard of. It's not supposed to be done that way. And he's, you know, continues on this path. But again, he shows his petty side and he tries to deny credit to the proconsul of the island of Crete for credit. And this guy had defeated the pirates on his island, I guess. And Pompey tried to deny this guy credit for that, which is, it's petty. I mean, you, you, you eliminated the pirates from the entire Mediterranean. Why do you need to stop this guy on the island of Crete from getting his credit? It seems irrelevant. Then, rather than that kind of solving Pompey's ambition or making him feel good that, you know, hey, I've, I've reestablished my name, it just whets his appetite. You know, he wants more. And he starts angling to get the war with Mithridates, which is still going on now. He's the guy that Sulla was fighting. He wants it reassigned to himself. And in charge of it for a number of years now has been this staunch supporter of Sola. And when Solo had marched on Rome, all of his commanders had laid down their posts rather than march with him, except for one. One commander marched with him. We don't know exactly who that was, but we're pretty sure it was this man, Lucullus. And Lucullus was this general that was in charge of the war against Mithridates, that kingdom. He was the king of the kingdom Pontus in northern Turkey. And his brother-in-law, I believe his brother-in-law, was Tigranes, king of Armenia, and they were waging war against Rome, and Lucullus was put in charge of the Roman army. And he was a great commander, and he was an excellent tactician, and he wins some of Rome's most brilliant victories, outnumbered two or three to one in, in incredible odds, and he's, and he's winning these battles. It's amazing. But he's not well-liked by his troops. And he tries to restrain and muzzle the Publicani. Remember, we talked about the Publicani are these ancient versions of corporations that go into the provinces and try to exploit it by bidding on tax contracts and saying, hey, you know, I can I can give you 10,000 gold denarii. And so, you know, some another Publicani might bid 15,000. And then, you know, whoever wins the contract, say it's for 20,000, can collect 20,000 of these denarii, send it back to Rome, and then anything else they can squeeze out of the provincial population in excess of the 20,000 they keep. This has obvious issues as a policy of running other people, you know? You're just squeezing them dry of money. And who's taking it is, you know, these rich businessmen. So Lucullus, he's like an aristocrat's aristocrat. And the Roman aristocrats despised business. It was beneath them. You know, to, to work for a living like that, to, you know, engage in, in mercantile business that was beneath them. And he also doesn't believe in what they're doing and that it's healthy for the empire. So he restrains them and doesn't allow them to make their money, doesn't allow them to profit off the local people. So you think that this is a good thing. You know, this guy's doing good stuff, right? But these Publicani, they have power in Rome and they have, you know, the ancient version of lobbies, you know, and they're lobbying senators that have maybe secret business interests with the Publicani or senators that need money for their 
political campaigns into supporting getting this commission taken away from Lucullus. And who's there to take it away from Lucullus? It's Pompey. So Pompey starts uh, – again, a tribune puts forward a bill to uh, you know strip Lucullus of command and put Pompey in charge. And Caesar again comes out and supports this as well. And he's not the only one because, again, eventually Lucullus is stripped and Pompey's given command. But the recurring theme in Pompey's career is he Lucullus had won most of the battles already. He had these guys on the ropes. And then Pompey takes over and then he gets credit for winning this war. And Lucullus comes back, you know, almost a broken man. And this I'm talking about off the top of my head, so I could have some of the details wrong. But I know he applies to the Senate for a triumph, you know, to celebrate his grand victories. And this would be something that he was well entitled to. He had spent many hard years on campaign and won incredible battles. And the Senate tells him no. And he spends the, the calls. He, he's an interesting guy because the sources say he then kind of devolves from this stern, disciplined war hero who's one of the chief optimates to become a guy that is almost sunk completely into pleasure and into relaxation. And he's raising pools of uh, catfish and he's dining on incredible foods that he that he brought back with him from the east. So he's going to come up later in the story again. But it's such a dichotomy. He goes from this stern, disciplined general that even his own troops don't like because he's so strict and he's not a very likable guy to somebody that's just given complete way to pleasure. And he's, you know, he's, he's eating lavish foods. He's holding grand parties, but he's not just doing that. He's also opening like big libraries for people. He wants to spread knowledge. I could do a podcast on him. It would be fascinating because he, you know, he wants to spread all this knowledge to people. I think he's creating parks for people. So when he's creating these parks and, and doing all these uh, things for the community, is he doing this as part of a, a position or is he trying to run for a position or is, or is this just some kind of, uh, or maybe a way to salvage his reputation or gain back the credit that he thought he should have deserved from winning? Uh, That's the- exactly what he's doing. Yeah. He, he's trying to, you know, salvage his reputation, but he's doing it in, in quite an unorthodox way. It's not really the way things were done. And it's definitely not in line with the optimists because the optimists were, you know, like Cato. They were all about the stern Roman morals of the past. You know, their plow pushing ancestors that had been simple farmers and, and hadn't had personal chefs with from like all over the empire that cooked lavish, rich food for them and, you know, drank wine from crazy vineyards and vintages. You know, they were the ones that supported the old ways, you know, where people were very simple and ate simple diets and everything else. And he was an arch optimate. He was like one of these arch aristocrats. And yet here he was delving into pleasures so much so that this is this is what I was going to say. Describing something as Lucolin even today is an adjective that derives from his pleasurable lifestyle. That means like lavish and uh, almost like too much. Now, what was that word again? I think it's Lucolin. Let me see. Okay. I might have it slightly wrong. Double check it right now. No, it's Lucolin. L-U-C-U-L-L-A-N. It means extremely luxurious. And that comes from his name. Like 2,050 years ago, this man lived a 
lavish, luxurious lifestyle, so much so that we have an adjective in English today in the year 2020 that describes his lifestyle. Yeah. That's yeah, pretty yeah. wild, right? Yeah, it is wild. And he basically just retired, you know? I mean, he just... <laughs> yeah, he did. He retired big. But the Romans, that wasn't a thing for them. You know, they didn't retire. You lived politics and, you know, you did it your entire life. Or at least the aristocrats didn't. So we're going to hold off there for this week with Caesar supporting Pompey with both of those measures. Pompey goes on to do great things in the East, and we'll talk about that in the next episode. He actually something like doubles or triples the treasury's annual revenues in Rome by re-administering the empire and, and you know, changing up the provinces and instituting different reforms in the administration. So it, he does remarkable things there. And we're going to get back to Caesar in the next episode where Caesar actually gets called up in a conspiracy to overthrow the government, another one. Now, there's no proof that he was ever involved in it, but people accused him of being involved in it. Now, this is one of those things where it's, is he just guilty by association? People know that, you know, he hangs out with people that are plotting to overthrow the government, or they just say, oh, well, he seems like the type, or was he actually involved, but was too slick to ever be caught, unlike the other people? We don't really know. We're going to talk about that next time, and we're going to talk about his time running for and becoming Adile, the next step on the political ladder. He's rising up to the ranks now. Until next time, again, this is the March of History now, and uh, we look forward to next week's episode. Sounds good. See you then. See you then.